listener production. I'm Emma Watkins, a children's entertainer and a lover of all things science and research. And welcome to the last episode of Season 2 of the Baby Lab Podcast, where I've teamed up with parents as well as experts from the Marks Baby Lab at Western Sydney University who are gaining valuable insights into how babies learn, grow and interact. Over the course of the season, we've been keeping a list of all the questions that have come in during the podcast. And on today's episode, we're going to answer them. Baby Lab's resident expert, Sue Hespos, is joining me for one last time to tick these questions off one by one. And there's a lot of questions. Bring it. (laughs) We filtered a few because we don't have time to do them all for this episode. But for any parents that still have questions, please write them in because I'm sure we'll be able to answer them later. Yes. And we'd be happy to field questions at the Baby Lab too. Okay. We're going to start with the first question, which is, when both parents are working, what is the best way to communicate or play with your children in a very limited time, mainly before bedtime? The Quick answer is it's always quality over quantity, right? So it doesn't have to be a huge amount of time, but just the ability to focus on your kid and doing things together that you both enjoy. So that's obviously going to change as the kid gets older. It also changes with their mood, their energy level, or your mood and your energy level. Um, Kids are often around for the ride. And so don't worry too much. Don't plan too much. Just do what you feel like doing. And the kids will follow in and let them lead sometimes, follow their lead. But obviously, there's times they can't always be in charge. And so um, you want to meet them where they're at. And so there's times when you do too much and you will overwhelm them and they will let you know. (laughs) So then, you know, tone it down a little bit. But in general, just consistency is what's really great for kids. I think that point about meeting the child where they're at is really important because it takes the pressure off the parent, right? For sure. And it's amazing how a kid can find playing just with, you know, the storage containers in the Mm. kitchen is the most interesting toy at certain times. Let them bang a wooden spoon onto a, you know, a pan. Um, Some of these things really don't take a lot of money or preparation. It's just reacting to your kid, being there for your kid, responding to them. And it's almost like ad-libbing onto, you know, imitate what they do. They love that. Mirror their actions. They'll think that's fantastic. Um, And again, it always depends on what age they're in, what mood they're in, and also what mood you're in. It's okay to not be totally energetic all the time. That's fine. That's life. And the kids need to learn that just like they need to learn how to be silly. I love that. So, Sue, this next question is from Lisa, and the question is, are babies able to take in complex experiences like the aquarium or a museum, or is it not worth taking them until they're a little bit older and they can understand what they're seeing? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, Babies always are picking up something. And so whether or not it is extremely important that they understand the museum exhibit in particular or the aquarium, you know, where the fish come from and things like that, um, that's not going to be acquired until much later. But 
They enjoy spending time with you. Um, if you talk to parents who have multiple children, the youngest kid is just along for the ride, right? So that kid is going to spend time at a sports event, um, watching older siblings play and things like that. And that can be just as important an educational experience as you know, going to a museum. So in general, don't worry too much. If you enjoy going to a museum and it allows you to sort of focus on your kid and let go of other things and relax, then it's a positive experience and it's worthwhile. But also, if you're stressed out and what you really need to do is go to the grocery store, go to the grocery store. The kid may find that just as interesting. And maybe you can add on like a little something like try out a new park across the street from the grocery store or on the way to the grocery store. Because If you're having fun, it's really likely the kid is just going to model you and also enjoy that time. So everything is a learning experience from a newborn or a young infant's point of view. And it doesn't have to be something that you buy tickets to attend. I now have a vision of uh, grocery stores having aquariums in the front (laughs) to try and cater for both of these experiences. No, exactly. But even when you're in the grocery store, you can do things like, can you find something red? I can't find the apples. Where are the apples? Or uh, can you count how many triangles you see? And so there are tons of ways to make everyday activities, learning experiences or playful. And that helps kids learn color names, words, stuff like that. Okay, next question. This is a good one. Can a co-parenting environment affect a child's socialization opportunities? And what are some things parents can do in this situation to keep the socialization opportunities present? That one's from Farouk. This is a question that I need to sort of ask more questions about, but it's um, in general, kids of parents who are living separately do fine. It is uh, something to organize in terms of pickups and drop-offs and times and the separate living situations, but kids are unbelievably adaptable. If you think about the variation across different cultures, the variation across parenting or co-parenting situations is well within that realm. Kids know how to travel, how to react to different social situations. And so in general, if the parents are doing fine, the kids are doing fine. And so if co-parenting is the way that works out best for your family, great. It's going to work out better for your kid too. Is that adaptability at that age, is that useful for the child then forever on? They have positives and negatives, right? So, um, and I'm not sure if this is where the question was coming from, but in cases of divorce and things like that, conflict-ridden households are more stressful than non-conflict-ridden households. And the data are really clear on this because divorce is not something that's unusual anymore in our society. So one thing that's great is that kids have other support structures. They're going to know other kids and other families that are either going through a divorce. You know, a divorce is not a single entity. It's an ongoing event that has good parts and bad parts. But even a traditional family has good parts and bad parts too. So kids are adaptable and they can acclimatize to any situation. It's not going to say that all of them go well. If the co-parenting is a new thing, those adjustment periods lead to kids acting out in a variety of ways. Younger kids act out differently than older kids, mainly because the repertoire of how they can act out varies. And so there is a lot of blended families out there today. And so parents are not alone on this. And that's what's important. You know, changing family situations, there are financial stressors and things like that, that are um, often the source of the problem. Whereas co-parenting as a thing is not 
good and it's not bad. It's just one of the many things that kids and families adapt to. I loved your use of the word repertoire. I feel like this podcast is really hoping that we're adding to parents' repertoire to problem solve here. Exactly, exactly. And if I can focus on that for just a second, in 20 years of teaching developmental psychology, the way that the science is sort of congealing is that there you want to look at a variety of answers to any problem. So it's this idea that first look for biological explanations. Is this just a stage that the kid is going through? Did they just go through a growth spurt? And so that's why they're not sleeping or they're, you know, fussy about various things. Um, So that's sort of like a biological explanation. Other things are social. Is your kid shy? Is your kid outgoing? And is that what's influencing their ability to interact with friends or ability to not get along with their siblings and things like that? And the third thing is cognitive. What is it that the child understands about the challenges that are before them? Can you facilitate them, you know, making improvements or should you leave them alone and let them struggle with it? And which one of those outcomes comes out the best? So those are sort of the three things that I always drill back to, which is a biological explanation, a social explanation, and a cognitive. And often it's going to be a combination of all three of these things. So this next question is from Sam. Sam has asked, since he was very little, my nine-month-old has often stopped to think about what he's doing or what he's looking at. What language do babies think in or do they think in pictures? Do we have any research in this area? So this could be an entire new season of podcast. <laughs> I love this question. <laughs> is um, this our next series Yeah, of there podcasts? we go. <laughs> um, it's such a fun one and I don't want to take too much time to answer it, but it is this question of like, Okay, sure, that's a fabulous question to ask about a kid, but I often start with adults. What are adults thinking? Do you think in visual terms? Do you think in written terms? Do you think in auditory terms? And I challenge anyone to throw this question out during a dinner party and just sit Mm. back and watch the fireworks happen because I've done this in many classes and it's so fun because everybody has the courage of conviction of like, everybody thinks visually, right? And they find the person next to them does not and has similar conviction uh, that no, doesn't everybody do it auditorily? (laughs) And so there is no one answer to this and there is no one right answer to this. And so it's flexible. It depends on a whole bunch of things that we don't really understand yet in the science. Um, But there's fast, it doesn't mean that we haven't been trying. Some people tend to be more visual. Some tend to be more auditory. But the visual people can talk to the auditory people. So clearly there must be some common ground between them. And that's kind of interesting. Um, To take it down to the kid level, there have been people that have postulated, well, maybe in the first couple years of life before kids have a very large vocabulary. It turns out if you ask people, what's your first memory? Most people, adults, have memories from two, three, four years of age, but not before. Mm-hmm. However, you can sit and ask a two-year-old about what they did six months ago, and they can tell you in detail. So the memories are there mm-hmm. in the one-and-a-half-year-old or even the one-year-old. But for some reason, there's something called childhood amnesia. Why do we have childhood amnesia? It's so strange. And language could be one of the explanations for this, that language changes the way that we think. And if you talk to people who speak multiple languages, they say they think differently in one language than they do in another. So there is so much fertile ground in this question. I love it. And there's just a lot more work to be done. I'm excited about the more work to be done in this area. (laughs) 
Okay, this next question is from Tom. Tom has asked, at what age should a parent be concerned if their child is not verbalising simple sentences or even requests? So it depends on many things. Um, What I would first say is listen to our podcast because um, we address this in a little bit more detail. And so that's a first place to start. Um, But roughly speaking, language production increases dramatically between 18 months and two years in most kids. Now, there's some kids that have huge vocabularies before that age, and there's some kids that have small vocabularies at two, and they turn out just fine. However, if you're having any concerns about where your child's language production is at, it's a really good idea to check with a general practitioner and find out. Um, on the Baby Lab website, we actually have something called the Ozai SF. It's a form that allows you to do checkboxes for where your kid's vocabulary is at and what age they are. And then you can compare it to hundreds of other children that have been tested on using this exact same vocabulary list. So it's one way to give you sort of insight to how does your kid compare to other children. And then also, if there is a language concern or a language production concern, there's a whole bunch of different ways to look at it. Is it cognitive? Is it that the kid doesn't comprehend what is said? Is it a hearing issue? Could it be that they just don't hear the distinctions between different words that people are enunciating for them? Or is it a a motor problem with the child, a motor concern? So like, is it that their lips aren't coordinating with their tongue in just the right way so that they can enunciate their words clearly for other people to understand them? Asking these kind of questions is a good way to start. And so that you can sort of divide this larger issue into smaller ones that are more manageable and have techniques for getting kids up to speed or just pushing them along or just to be fascinated by the process of actually learning a language. It's phenomenal that kids have no language and they have these thoughts and the bringing of those two things together is a fascinating process. In terms of milestones, this next question is really important and this one's from Apoorva. Apoorva asks, is there such thing as too early to hit a milestone? My son pulled himself up to stand for the first time when he was only six months old and he has done so since. Is there consequences for a child developing a skill too early because he seems to fall and bump himself frequently? Mm -hmm. Well, in that particular example, there's probably not a concern um, in that uh, kids fall and bump themselves frequently. And it turns out that even if you look at adults, we do that too. We're just what we learn and we become more expert at is making the consequences of those mistakes less catastrophic, right? So a kid will completely wipe out um, and they actually even have to learn to put their hands out in front of them when they fall. Um, And how do they learn that? They learn that by hitting their nose several times and then go, wow, that hurts and it's better if I do it on my hands. And so there's a learning process that goes along with this. And because we are such able-bodied creatures, We can climb mountains, we can go on wet surfaces and sandy surfaces and icy surfaces, and we can navigate all of these different terrains. But the ability that we have to do that depends on our ability to be adaptable. Mm. And so it's kind of interesting in terms of the evolutionary sense. We were built so that we could adapt to a variety of different things. It's not just like a one-trick pony, right? You know, like it is this ability to navigate changing environments all of the time. And so that has the advantage of allowing us to navigate a variety of different paths, but it also means that we make a lot of mistakes and we learn from them. So there is no single one path 
to development. And so some kids are early crawlers. Some kids are early walkers. Um, some cultural situations where children are often carried, they walk much later. Um, all of those kids end up learning how to walk. So it's fine. And there's strengths and weaknesses that kids have to work on and develop uh, to catch up. So development is kind of piecemeal. So an early crawler tends to be a long, skinny kid. Um, it's just a physics thing of do they have the muscle to mass ratio to get their butt off the floor? And then really like chunky kids, these like cherub, big babies, they sit early. Their center of gravity is like super low. And in our culture, we embrace putting kids on their back to sleep. That means that they do a lot of leg lifts. And when you're doing a lot of leg lifts, you get lumbar strength um, and core strength. And that is important in learning how to walk, but it's not important in learning how to crawl. And so some kids just skip crawling altogether and they're fine. So again, lots of variation. And um, if a kid wants to crawl really badly, put them on their belly and, and they'll start doing push-ups and they'll build up the arm strength to, you know, get their belly off the floor. And those things will improve their strength and let those milestones occur. But it's a combination of many factors, their motor abilities, as well as the motivation. If there are siblings or pets in the house, those kind of kids are going to crawl earlier. So all of these factors play roles in terms of when these social milestones happen. I think I skipped crawling and my mum was pretty worried because then I started moving way too fast. <laughs> exactly. There is there is this catch-22 with parents, right? Because they, oh. we encourage our kids to talk and then they tell us what they want us to do for them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so it is, it's always this uh, complex situation. Sue, this next question is from Mandy, and Mandy has asked, is it a problem if a child is playing in a room where a TV or a phone is in use, if they're not necessarily watching it, but rather than playing? In general, it's not a problem. We all grow up in a variety of different environments. Um, so, for example, right now, outside this studio, there is a protest going on and there's some background noise and we're still able to interact fine. And so you can sort of attend to what you're focusing on and sort of dismiss the rest. And babies can do this too. So basically as a caretaker, um, if you notice that the kid is getting distracted by those noises, sure, turn off the TV if you can. Uh, and if they aren't, you can sort of redirect their attention. You can facilitate them focusing on other things like turn them away from the TV or um, change the volume, uh, things like this. But we're amazingly good at focusing in on the things that are important to us and dismissing the ones that aren't. And for our children who are developing, we can foster what we want them to attend to and hopefully get them to dismiss the things that aren't worthwhile. Um, if you think about kids growing up in cities or even in the country, there's a variety of sort of ambient noises going on at all times. And we sort of hear them but we don't necessarily have to attend to them. You can separate those two things. And kids can do that from early in development as well. This next question is from Emma, but not myself, but I am <laughs> very much interested in this question as well. The question is also, is it encouraged to have white noise on for babies? And why is this so? Is it better to not condition them to think as soon as they hear a sound that they need to sleep? I, I feel like I'm saying it depends on every mm. single... Uh, 
question that is asked. Um, so it depends on the situation. White noise is something that marketing people who put out the toys that, are, you know, teddy bears with a white noise maker inside and things like that, um, because they can work. It is a training mechanism. Basically, mm-hmm. you put on the white noise and it causes you to think, oh, it's time to go to bed. So you relax and you close your eyes and you breathe more slowly. And so, yeah, all of those factors will help you relax and go to sleep. And that's true of an infant as well as an adult. Having said that, we just had a previous question about noise in the environment. And so it's Im- impressive the noise and hubbub that babies can fall asleep in, right? They can mm-hmm. be in the middle of a noisy party and just completely cash out. So it depends on the kid. Some kids wake up to the smallest of noises and white noise can make it easier to have ongoing things in the house to drown out other noises. However, uh, kids can also adapt to just about any situation. And so it's this idea of, is it the white noise that causes them to go to sleep? I doubt it. It's the idea that they know, oh, all right, things are happening that suggest that I'm about to go to bed. And again, that can work to your advantage and disadvantage. Some kids really snuggle down and say, okay, we read the book, we brush our teeth, it must be bedtime. Mm-hmm. And they may embrace it. That same kid, months later, will be like, wait a minute, I know where this is leading <laughs> and I'm absolutely fighting it. And so, again, kids are really good at picking up sequences of events that lead to something that they can then expect. Um, however, they also know how to fight, recognize those things, and then fight them. So it is breathtaking how socially sophisticated kids can be. And you got to stay one step ahead of them. And some days you win and some days you don't win. <laughs> knowing the routine and knowing how to escape the routine. Exactly. And and it's a double-edged sword, right? The more consistent you are, the more likely they are to detect that routine and then turn it on you if they should so desire that to be. This next set of questions is from Sanaz. Would it be a good idea to have a screen on in the background when your child is born? This way, they're not so attracted to the screen once they become more aware of the world? Or is it best to just hold off screen time until a later age? There's no hard and fast rule on any of this. One, if you can manage having a screen on or off during the birth process, more power to you. I don't think it's going to be a memorable event for anyone in the room because there's other stuff that is going on. So I don't think that's going to matter one way or another. In terms of just ongoing, like when they're young, do you want to avoid absolutely all screens? I challenge anybody to actually succeed on that in this day and age. There's a lot of screens everywhere. And so screen time is something that, you know, health professionals definitely try to say, reduce your screen time. Nobody's going to say no screens at all because it's kind of impossible, right? Like think about all the screens in our cars and our phones and our computers and our TVs. What eventually has to happen is you have to control the amount of screen time. And it can be something that is a reward for the kids if the kid is really into screen time. It can be something that is for special situations or certain times. And there are benefits and costs to screen time. And we talk a little bit about that in one of the episodes. But in general, you have to figure out the interaction between your kid and whether or not screen time is used as a leverage tool, like a You know, like if you do this, then you get screen time or an educational thing. If you spend 10 minutes doing this educational exercise on some screen, you know, iPad, computer, whatever, it's great if it can be supervised and interactive with a sibling or a caretaker, but it doesn't have to be. 
And so figure out what works for your kid at that various time. But keep looking over their shoulder. See what it is that they're actually getting out of it. Is it a relaxation technique for them? Is it a learning opportunity? Are they being presented with the kind of information that you want them to be presented with? Parents can control. It's not just the screen. Parents control what's on the screen. And therefore, they can create whatever dynamic they want. I think we're looking forward to, particularly over the next five and 10 years, how much the research will also change in terms of screen time. Well, I think what's amazing about the whole screen time conversation, too, is that this isn't the first time, right? Mm. You know, people talked about the printed word as a threat. Wow. People talked about the onset of television as, Mm. you know, terrible for families and interactions and things like that. And same with texting, same with, you know, computers and, and our smartphones. Every little bit of new technology is, is going to have the doomsayers as well as the people that champion it. And the truth that has been consistent from the onset of the printed word up until the most recent gadgets that we have is that some aspects of it are good and some aspects of it are not. And so that's why I encourage the parents to see what is it that the kid is getting out of the video game or the time that they're spending when they're watching the screen, whatever that screen may be, because there are definitely good things and bad things about screen time. This next question is from Cynthia, and Cynthia has asked, I feel like there's a trend in this generation, a good one, to raise boys who are able to better understand and communicate their feelings. Any tips to raise emotionally aware children? Yeah, I agree with you about that trend. I recognize it and the data are there. We are finding out that kids are more socially sophisticated than we ever assumed or ever give them credit for. Um, And so it's really interesting. The social development, like all types of development, is piecemeal. So you'll find islands of confidence where kids will have turn-taking abilities and insights into how they see the world um, that are absolutely jaw-droppingly stunning, right? You know, sometimes kids just say the most profound things that come out of their mouth, and they make you stop and think, and it's wonderful. The basic tips that I would offer are that find the islands of confidence that a kid has and then build on them and poke at them. Ask them what they think. Ask them wonderful questions like, well, where do you think the wind comes from? And there are wonderful stages in toddlerhood where kids have definitive answers to whatever question you ask them. They are not limited by reality (laughs) or (laughs) lack of confidence. And so they're wonderful conversationalists. And you can find just, it's delightful conversations to see because you get this insight like, wow, they walk like us and they talk like us and we think they think like us. And in some ways they do, and in profound ways they do not. And so those are just fun things to ask kids about um, and ask them about their emotions. Um, Ask them to explain how they're feeling because this is where you get insights into where those boundaries lie. It's incredible what they pick up. They can pick up the tone of your voice. They can pick up the way that you're moving and how you feel because they're with you a lot. And so they're actually ridiculously insightful to the ongoings around them. And they're also stunningly egocentric at times. And they're stunningly 
concrete about things that you think they're sophisticated about. So ask lots of questions and probe their knowledge um, and explain to them exactly how you're feeling. Sometimes the things that you will say will go over their head, but time and time again throughout the research, the data suggests that kids are abstract in their understanding in the first year of life. So you can explain these things to them and they will be picking up maybe not the content and details of what you're saying, but the tone of your voice, how you're reacting to what they're saying. And these are bits of information that sort of build up their piecemeal knowledge into a more coherent, you know, mosaic. Sue, I know we've had lots of different questions from parents, but we really should encourage the parents to now submit all of the questions from their children for the oh, next that would episode. Be the best. <laughs> please, please. <laughs> okay, this next question is from Edward. And Edward has asked if a number of people in your family struggle with mental health issues, is it likely your child will also? How can we as parents ensure our children are open about their feelings and don't feel that sense of shame? Yes, uh, mental illness is pervasive. It's pervasive across cultures. It's pervasive across uh, socioeconomic status. You know, across the variety of, of mental health issues, there are biological components, but there's also environmental aspects. Basically, the advice to give is that modeling positive social behavior around these issues is what children are going to pick up on. They understand, like we were just saying in the previous question, they understand your range of response. They understand when you're joking and when you're being serious. And their depth of knowledge is going to depend on their age and their sophistication, but they're reading your signals really early in development. So watch yourself and be open to demonstrating the behavior that you want to see in them. Because even when you think they're not listening, they're kind of listening. They're modeling your behavior. Imitation is a very powerful learning mechanism. And so how you react to people with mental illness is going to be predictive of how they're going to react as well. And this is instructive because you're not the only input on your child. And so they're going to be picking up things from the social environment, the media environment that they're exposed to. And again, this is sort of going back to questions about screen time. The screen times that you're presenting your children with, do they condone the same things that you want your child to be spending time thinking about? Reading the signals, that's a great one. Yeah. And they're really good at reading the signals, children. They are stunning. And you will hear your voice come right back (laughs) at you at various times during your child's development. And it is uh, equally often going to be a point of pride as well as something of a message to, you know, clean up your game a little bit. (laughs) A good warning. This next question from Raj is, why is there such a push for babies to learn how to self-settle and soothe? And when should you no longer assist with your child's sleep? Oh, this is a great question. When your kid is getting enough sleep is when you shouldn't assist it. At just do whatever you're doing and, and congratulations to you. <laughs> um, however, there's always going to be times where there are sleep challenges, um, sleep challenges for the parents as well as sleep challenges for the child. And self-soothing is one of many techniques. Um, it's a very popular one, but it is not the only one that is out there. And so I encourage you that if self-soothing is not working for you or your culture or whatever, seek out other methods. There are differences across whether or not kids co-sleep with family members or 
not, whether or not um, kids should figure out how to put themselves to sleep or cry it out. There are also other techniques about positive reinforcement or behavior modification. There's a lot of options out there. There's not just one option. And I promise you that if one is working for one week, it may not work next week. And so you have to sort of be open to the possibility of changing up your game a little bit. And then there's some weeks where kids just don't sleep well and you you get through it, but it is really hard. Um, as a parent, you know, if you're tired and cranky, you're not going to be showing your best consistent game and your kid is not either. And so be gentle with yourself, but also be open to the idea that if a certain method is not working for you, um, there are many other methods that are out there and you should seek them out. That constant reminder that there's not one pathway, even though it applies here to this concept of sleep, applies for everything in this podcast. It does. It probably applies even more broadly than that, right? Exactly. We need to find all these different pathways through the forest to get through. That can be overwhelming sounding, of course. So that's why I break it into three. You know, Mm. think about where is the cognition at for the kid? Try to get inside your kid's head and understand what perspective, what problem is it that the kid is trying to solve? It may not be the same as the problem you're trying to solve. So for example, if your kid is acting out, Is it because your kid is angry or because your kid wants attention? Both of those need two different responses. To meet your kid where they're at and then problem solve from there is the best sort of general advice that I can give. Meet your child where they're at. This is our last question. This is from Alicia. Some families leave their baby to sleep alone in a room at around four months old, some of them even just when they're born. But in many other cultures... They believe that the baby sleeps with the mother because it will be more stable and the sense of security might be stronger. Is it better to sleep alone or with the mother in those early years? So this is a great question and there's no single correct answer to it. There are many cultures that co-sleep with family members and those kids turn out Great. Um, there are many cultures that it, you know embrace an idea of independence really early on. And so those kids sleep alone. And those kids also work out great. So it really depends on what works for your family at that time in that place. There are a variety of opinions about this. These opinions, people have very strongly held views about this. And the data show that there is no right or wrong answer to this. Um, If it helps you get along with your in-laws to discuss this question, I embrace that. However, a lot of people do not (laughs) and intentionally (laughs) avoid having this discussion with some people from other generations, even within their own family and culture. And the only definitive answer I can give you is that there is no single one answer and that a variety and a variation of situations work. There is a constant sense through all of the discussion that we've had over this podcast about that relationship between the parent and the child, and that's the one that we really need to hone into to make those decisions. Exactly, because I can tell you about the masses across the world. 80% of the world's cultures co-sleep with family members. 20% do not. However, these numbers don't matter to you and your child, right? That's a very macro level response. But at the end of the day, it's about, did you get a good night's sleep last night? And how about your kid? Or how about your kids? Um, and how about your you and your partner, the family members that are cohabitating in the house? So again, I can tell you about what's out there in the world in terms of data, but individually, 
you have to work these things out for the time in your family. And you know your kid better probably than, you know, the primary caretaker has a wealth of information about that relationship with that kid. And so taking input from the outside world, trying out and being open to new ways of looking at things is a great approach. Um, However, at the end of the day, there's individual solutions to these problems and it works out. Sue, thank you for providing your experience and advice on all of these questions today. We really appreciate it. And thank you for joining us on this podcast. Well, and thank you for being the the sort of bridge to asking these great questions and uh, and facilitating the answers. We understand that lots of parents we are hoping are connecting with this podcast throughout its journey. But I think for me as a parent, not yet, at least, I've learned so much and I really hope and encourage all adults to be able to listen and join in with the podcast learnings as well. Well, thank you. Thank you. And yes, I think that these are the questions that people ask throughout life, Mm. right? Um, Everybody comes in contact with younger beings. And so, you know, I I have one of the greatest jobs. I get to ask the questions that people always ask. They're fascinating answers. Uh, I will never be out of a job because we will never have definitive answers for exactly how to raise children. But the data um, do give us some insights. And so I encourage everyone who's listening to reach out to local universities, participate in research at Baby Labs. They exist in most universities. And it's a great resource. You can ask the questions that you have about your own kid as well as help science proceed and so that we can get you better answers for the questions that you raise. Thank you so much, Sue. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. I want to take a moment to thank all the parents who sent questions in and also to the parents and experts who joined me on season two of the Baby Lab podcast. From milestones to screen time, socialization to music, we've covered a lot of ground together and it's been a pleasure learning with you. If you're interested in being part of some of the incredible research, make sure you reach out to the team at the Marks Baby Lab. And if there's one thing I'll take away from this series, and Sue said it best, there's no single path to development. You have to do what's right for your child and your family. The Baby Lab podcast is a listener production brought to you in partnership with the Marks Baby Lab at Western Sydney University. Hosted by me, Emma Watkins. Audio by Kelly Fulston. Executive producer is Todd Stevens, and producer is Thomas Thexton. Listener.